Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello out there, War College listeners. It's Matthew. And I'm here to introduce today's episode, which is going to be a rerun because Jason and I spent Thanksgiving eating turkey, and hanging out with our families. So we're bringing you an episode today from the archives. It's one from December of 2015. It's almost two years old, and it was covering what was then current events at the time. Uh, Interestingly, though, those events have come to uh, shape our national discourse in a way I don't think either Jason or I, or even the guest really, could have predicted. The guest is Peter Pomerantsev, and we are talking about his book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And it's all about how Putin's propaganda machine works and the way Russia destabilizes the very idea of truth and democracy to spread its soft power. Now, this was, again, back in 2015. These were kind of new and interesting ideas that not a lot of people were talking about, uh, but we were. And for my money, Peter's book on Russian propaganda is still one of the best around. If you really want to understand the point of it, Uh, which was not in this previous election cycle specifically to elect Donald Trump. It's much more complicated and I think much more interesting and much more insidious than that. So here I'll let Peter tell us, take a listen to an episode from 2015. If Stalin was 75% violence and 25% propaganda, Putin is 75% propaganda and 25% violence. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, Contributing Editor at War is Boring. Today, we're speaking with Peter Pomerantsev, a journalist and former Russian TV producer. His book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, which, by the way, is a fantastic title, explores the Kremlin's weaponization of information. So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, Peter, I want to open with a a quote from your book and then a question. Um, So you say that TV is the only force that can unify and rule and bind this country, referring to Russia. Um, It's the central mechanism of a new type of authoritarianism, one far subtler than the 20th century strains. Uh, Can you explain to us what this new type of authoritarianism is, and how is it more subtle than its predecessors? Sure. I mean, um, the big difference between... uh, Well, there's two or three big differences between contemporary authoritarianisms, and it's not just Russia. I mean, there's several several, uh, ones we could focus on. 
Um, and that was one Russian professor who put it very well to me. He said, like, uh, if Stalin was 75% violence and 25% propaganda, Putin is 75% propaganda and 25% violence. You know, in a, in a world where there's just so many more information mechanisms, um, new authoritarians can, can use them to a much more sophisticated degree. I mean, the way it was more sophisticated, um, and it is shifting now, was that um, if the Soviets would basically suppress any kind of dissent uh, and try to hammer home sort of one big message, Putin's TVocracy um, was much more uh, was much more cunning. Um, it would allow sort of uh, pockets of freedom. It would allow um, liberals to exist, uh, but then it would frame and manipulate them in a certain way uh, to make them at the end of the day, strengthen Putin and the Kremlin. I mean, it's sort of in, a, in a world there are so many media resources, you can't censor everything, you can't suppress everything, but you can be subtle and sort of play it. I mean, so I'll give you a few examples. So you do have talk shows in Russia. I mean, if you've sort of debating shows, political debating shows, they're actually very, very good, um, but they're centrally scripted. So there's a sort of fake left-wing party, which is created in the Kremlin and run by the Kremlin. And there's a fake right-wing party, which is sort of created and run by the Kremlin. And they kind of debate with each other. Both of them are so absurd, they make Putin look sensible by contrast. Um, or, for example, um, there is, the, you know, one of the institutions I worked for in Russia was something called Snob Media, um, which was run by created by Russia's richest man. And it was meant to be like a, the Russian version of the New Yorker. Um, plus, you know, there's going to be a TV channel which never materialized, but there was a sort of publishing house and there was a, a website, um, a sort of, a, sort of a fa an elite Facebook, um, sort of a closed Facebook. Um, and anyway, so it was, it, was, um, it was dedicated to creating a new type of Russian, what we called global Russians. And you could t tell everyone how awful Putin was, uh, Masha Gessen, you know, the great Masha Gessen, you know, I'm sure you know, was one of the editors, you know, it was, it was, it was you know, uh, uh, an arc, a uh, Noah's arc of liberalism in many ways. But at the same time, we were all really aware when we worked there that, my God, you know, this is being funded by Russia's richest man. There's no way he couldn't have done this without the Kremlin's kind of, you know, permission. Um, and that was kind of the point. So, I mean, the point was to give liberals a place to breathe and, and sort of vent their frustrations. But at the same time, you know, it was called snob. Uh, it was funded by Russia's richest man. The Kremlin could easily go, look at these liberals, look at their global Russianness, look at the lifestyle they promote. I mean, the, their politics liberal and the lifestyle they promote sort of holidays in Europe, and which is inaccessible to 99, you know, to the vast majority of Russians. So the Kremlin could go, oh, look, at, look at our liberal oppositions funded by um, these sort of like um, the westernized spoiled oligarchs and, and sure enough the guy who, who funded it then became the pseudo liberal candidate at the uh, elections uh, he got a very respectable 14 percent soaked up the liberal vote and then promptly disappeared from the political scene he kind of done his job so it's a much much subtler and much more kind of um, system than just like you know stupid old soviets uh, rule which looked to suppress dissent and thus created a really sort of like strong anti-communist movement. So who's behind it? Who's thinking in such a, I don't know, a sophisticated, smart way? Well, I mean, look, it developed. You know, we can look at the way it developed through the 90s. Actually, the first people who let it happen were Democrats. So, so in the mid-1990s, it looks as if uh, Yeltsin, uh, who was a more kind of pro-Western president, would lose the elections to the communists who'd really become social democrats by then. Um, and so all the oligarchs got together because they were really scared of this. 
Um, and in order to save democracy, they hired a sort of a new type of political consultant called uh, a political technologist, sort of a, a 21st century propagandist, to um, create sort of uh, sort of pseudo scare stories and help rig the votes and help rig the election. And it's quite funny. It was a class of liberal political consultants who actually made this happen. Uh, a lot of them regret it now. A lot of them say openly that was the moment when Russia lost it in '96. So in order to save democracy, we used undemocratic means. But with time, kind of one of this class of political consultants emerged as, um, you know, as the most powerful one. A guy called Vladislav Surkov, um, who's very much, you know, a zeitgeist kind of figure. He was a bohemian and a dissident, kind of dissident in Soviet times. Studied theatre, then became a PR guy. Sponsors modern art festivals writes postmodern novels, which are okay, about cynical PR men. Um, and uh, he kind of, he calls himself one of the authors of the system. I mean, he's also had it openly, and he ran it for a while. He ran TV and political parties. But I wouldn't say it's one person. It's a very, you know, it's a big state. It's a very fluid, reactive state. Sokov came to symbolize it in many ways. Um, I don't think anyone has total control. Not even Putin himself? Well, Putin doesn't... Um, Oh, in that sense, you mean, as in like, is there, yeah, but Putin is the arbiter of all the decisions. I mean, nobody's, like, the system isn't, um, uh, it, it is a postmodern system that way, you know, it can sort of like work in various ways and like somebody in the provinces can be running their own mini projects or somebody in the oil and gas thing will be running their own mini projects. It's quite flexible. Uh, it's not actually very rigid that way. Uh, all right. We've, you've, we've said the word postmodern a couple times here um, and you're, in your book, you say a postmodern dictatorship is one that uses language and the institutions of dis democratic capitalism for authoritarian ends. And you kind of talk about how this model of Kremlin propaganda takes, kind of takes the West, digests it, and then perverts it. Uh, so could you explain how, how the Kremlin does this? How do they use the Western messages and, and twist them on television? And what and, and what exactly is do you mean by a postmodern dictatorship? Well, sure. So, so the key ideas of sort of postmodernity are the idea of the you know what Baudrillard called the simulacra, yeah, a thing which looks like something but actually isn't it itself, uh, and something quite different. Uh, simulacra is maybe the most overused word in Russian politics. All, all the analysts use it. So we have pseudo political parties, pseudo independent media. It's all pseudo. It all looks free, but actually once you get into it, it works in completely different ways. This was one of the great things of Kacha ben Dukidze, the, uh, the great uh, Georgian reformer, maybe one of the most effective post-Soviet reformers, who was like, we live, and he's quite Baudrillard quite a lot, he said, we live in a world where nothing is what it seems. I mean, the police do not, are not actually police, they, they're involved in racketeering. Uh, the tax agency are not the tax agency, all the signs you see are something else. Um, so that's what we mean. Uh, also we mean by the loss uh, the lack of any one coherent narrative, and many, 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 many little narratives, and the lack of a stable um, social uh, individuality and role. But just coming back to this idea of simulacra, because that's the most coherent one when we talk about policy. So take elections in Russia. Russia has, you know, elections with different political parties uh, running uh, against each other and competing, and, you know, there are debates on TV. And, and you know, If you were to just tune into it, you would think... Oh, my God, it looks just like America. However, everybody knows who's going to win, a priori. Everyone knows that they will be rigged. 
And there's a great essay by Stephen Holmes about this, the New York University professor, that uh, it's actually a ritual. It's actually a ritual where you go and pretend to sort of uh, uh, to take part in the serious vote. Everyone knows exactly what's going to happen. It's the, the faking is quite transparent. The state is saying we are so powerful, we can fake these results. And, um, uh, you know, the, the whole point is for the state to show its power. So even though it's authoritarian power, so through the ritual, of a democratic uh, vote, or it looks like a democratic vote, you're actually reinforcing an authoritarian model. So that's that's one, I think, very, very good example of it. And it's sort of a, uh, you know, a fairly pointed one, because elections is always what we sort of associate with um, uh, democracy. So that's actually taken from the West in a way, right? I mean, that's, uh, I mean, the Western idea of, and ideal of democracy. And you talk about how the U.S. is used. Foreign media is woven into the Kremlin's version of the media. Right. You talk about Larry King quite a bit in your book and his RT show. Yeah. Well, not quite a bit. I, mean, I think Larry King has two lines in my book, but there are very important two lines. I, I apologize. You talk about Larry <laughs> King as an example in your book. Well, Larry, look, so I mean... Here we're talking about RT, which is Larry King had a show on RT, which is the Kremlin's foreign uh, broadcaster. It's not, it's, not, it's not in Russian. It's in English, Spanish, Arabic, a few other languages, I think. So RT is very interesting, again, for the same reason. So RT, when you switch it on, looks just like CNN or the BBC. I mean, down to the music, you know, it's like it's very, very similar. Um, the presentation, everything. So switching on, go, oh, look, it's just another sort of like, you know, international TV news channel. Um, and uh, its slogan is very interesting. The slogan is question more, which is a really clever slogan because, you know, that's very much the Western ideal of what journalism should be all about. I don't know if you saw their advertising in Washington, D.C. Um, it was sort of and Tony Blair preaching before, really nicely sort of drawn posters, Tony Blair preaching before the Iraq war. And, you know, below it says, this is what you get as the Iraq war if you don't have a second opinion. And then Colin Powell uh, as well. Um, which is, you know, how can you possibly disagree with, with, that, with that idea? That's, you know, the essence of, um, uh, of Western, uh, the Western ideal of journalism is to question more and question power and have a second opinion. But then RT used that ideal to kind of do something very, very interesting. They, they sort of, well, basically they destroy, um, well, they destroy sort of the line between sort of information and disinformation. They, 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 once you sort of get rid of the idea that there's any kind of uh, sort of, you know, objective truth out there, which is, you know, there probably isn't, uh, they kind of take that to its extreme by saying, well, then it's fine for us to do disinformation. Or they'll um, have uh, experts who aren't, uh, who just literally just nutcases taken off the street a lot of the time, sort of a neo-Nazi uh, from Germany will suddenly be key German expert on uh, European affairs, or somebody from Linda LaRouche's organization will suddenly be key American experts on world development. Because once you get rid of, you know, once you take the very noble idea of questioning more, of undermining the sort of hegemonic truth, and you take it to its absolute extreme, you can basically say there's no difference between a Cambridge University professor and a freak. Um, and so they take that, so it's strange, they take a very, very, you know, healthy idea, and they take it to kind of like a, a place where it's, it starts to undermine um, sort of its own uh, its, its its own ideals. Um, so again, a little bit like election. You take elections and you push them to a place which is the opposite of their original meaning. Um, so so that's why RT is very interesting. And, and Larry King, God bless his soul and God bless his conscience, um, had a show on this. 
Um, and it was, I really liked the advert for it because it was, um, you know, it was Larry King going, come watch my new show on RT. And then it was like all the words that we associate with good journalism, I don't know, um, you know, truth seeking, um, uh, research, uh, you know, bravery, all these words sort of going very, 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 very fast across the screen. And just visually, it was, it was, it was uh, sort of taking all the cliches of Western journalism and sort of putting them, them through this kind of... Uh, uh, fast forward uh, effects, which which in the end sort of um, sort of makes them feel almost meaningless. You know, they just become just words, and and it was it always seemed to be like an, a big fu towards Western journalism. It's like, like we can take your cliches and we can destroy them from inside. Um, I don't know if they meant that. But, you know, sometimes adver- an advert says something deeper than, than than it's the people who created it uh, intended it. All right, War College listeners, we're going to pause here briefly for a word from our sponsors. You are listening to one of the older episodes of the show, I believe the 18th one that we recorded. It's a conversation with author, journalist, and former reality television producer Peter Pomerantsev. We'll be back after this. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. All right, War College listeners, thank you so much for sticking around. We are back with our wonderful conversation from 2015 with author and journalist Peter Pomerantsev. He's telling us all about his book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. I think it's been very interesting to listen to this episode now, especially in light of everything we know about Russia and how it's some of its propaganda operations work and have been working here in the United States probably even earlier than 2015. Now let's get back to this conversation where I believe Jason has an interesting anecdote about seeing RT for the first time. I have this feeling that RT, uh, or at least RT.com, used to be a little bit more subtle. Um, And the reason I say this is a couple of years ago, um, I don't know if you remember, there was a, a... American, at least alleged American spy who was a fairly low-grade official in the uh, Moscow embassy uh, who was wearing, uh, at least according to the RTV footage, uh, a bad wig when he was caught. I think that was true. Yeah. Everyone covered that. Well, it was was absolutely fascinating, though, because, uh, of course, they broke the story. And um, I remember sitting in a newsroom, people wondering, oh, wow, who is this RT? Um, And I think at least at first it was kind of subtle and people didn't really recognize it as Kremlin propaganda. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. When I watched, I watched uh, RTV not very long ago, it was right before the Russians stepped in and started bombing in Syria. And they were talking about the U.S. bombing in Syria. And on the television channel, one thing I, I noticed is exactly what you were talking about. Um, I mean, they did seem to have experts off the street. And they spoke about when they were talking about the U.S. bombing of ISIS, they referred to it very specifically as bombing civilians in Syria. Um, and I, I don't know, was it more subtle? I mean, was it always uh, sort of this level? Um, I mean, they had some prominent anchors walk out a couple of years ago saying things had gone too far. You know, it actually started as a soft PR project, quite a classic soft PR project, just doing fluffy stuff about Russia. And then nobody wanted that. Uh, and they kind of changed in 2008 during the Georgian War. Um, but they go through peaks and troughs, you know what I mean? My, my sense is that maybe they've really decided to zero in on the kind of, on the viewer they feel isn't um, catered for in the US, which is um, the kind of fringe left and fringe right viewer. Um, I think before maybe they were going for a slightly more, um, you know, maybe PBS-y sort of viewer. So I don't know, but listen, they occasionally do really good stories. I mean, they, they have a couple of, you know, it's 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 all mixed in. That's the whole point. You do a good one, then you do a crazy one. You do a good one, you do a crazy one. Um, so so even now you could switch it on and see a perfectly good story. So um, I, I, my sense is that after Crimea, it got really really uh, really really crass during the war in Ukraine. That's when they were told off by Ofcom, the British regulator. And like in the US, we have regulators in the UK, and they've been told off I don't know four or five times, which is you know a lot um, for just you know telling lies basically. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, I think it, it, look, it's a tool of Russian foreign policy. So if the foreign policy is very sharp at the moment, at that moment, they'll really go for it. If the foreign policy is being friendly with the U.S., maybe they'll change their approach over the next couple of months because now Russia and the U.S. are bosom buddies again. Uh, all right. I have, a, I have a question for you, Peter. You, you, you actually worked in Russian TV. You were a TV producer. How overt is the control from your bosses? Like when you wanted to tell a story that... They didn't necessarily want to tell. Would they just? Would they like? How did how did that work? How did they kind of steer the ship? Well, listen. I worked for an entertainment channel because mm -hmm. when I arrived, when I was working with Russian channels, which is two thousand six to two thousand ten, it was already kind of dodgy to work for a news channel. So I was working for you know my, my background is in entertainment. Uh, so I worked for a channel which brought the sitcom to Russia and brought stand up comedy to Russia and brought some reality shows to Russia and all that kind of stuff. Um, there was very, I mean, they were actually, because they were an entertainment channel, they could do really risque stuff with their comedy. I mean, they did, um, uh, they did a, a, a Russian version of a British sketch show called Little Britain, where they could do really risque stuff without ever naming names. I mean, there would be stuff about, you know, there was a regular sketch about Russia's most corrupt, uh, Russia's only uncorrupt traffic cop. Um, and he's like, you know, he refuses to take any bribes and like he lives in penury and his wife is always, he must become corrupt like everyone else. <coughs> Uh, and there was a sketch about uh, a hospital where, like, you know, there's a room where you, take, you pay a bribe and, uh, you know, you get this incredible sort of like, uh, sort of, you get a, a, incredible health care and prostitutes and everything. And then next door is the, the normal one where, you know, just the, the sort of uh, national health uh, thing and the people just yeah. dying horribly. Well, I, I got to say, though, speaking as an American here, um, I don't know about the NHS. That is actually literally the case. 
Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I think uh, we, we know the whole world knows about America's uh, healthcare due to, due to the um, excellent, subjective, and um, uh, analytical reporting of Michael Moore. Um, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, but the difference in Russia is you, you just give a bribe to the doctor. You just put it in his pocket. You don't, you don't pay it to an institution. It's not. Um, you know, they haven't got to the point where ca- where corruption becomes market capitalism. It's just corruption still. Oh, interesting. Um, but maybe they'll mature into that. Actually, one of the big arguments for fighting corruption is just why don't you just institutionalize it? You know, if 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 just just make it exactly have it like in the US, have it done officially. But um, uh, so anyway, so actually, being an entertainment channel, they could do a lot of. Um, uh, a lot of really risque stuff, but I I also worked in their documentary department, and I one of the things they wanted to do was stories about teens because it was kind of youth orientated. And when I started doing stories about teens, I just found a lot of the stories had a political edge because you know it was about teens being beaten up by the cops, which is a real problem. Teens, you know, being sent to the army as national service in Ukraine, and and you know they, they, there's a terrible problem with hazing in Russia, like really bad. I mean, a lot of suicides story about suicides among conscripts. Um, and these shows rated well because they were about people's lives and people enjoyed them and young kids enjoyed them. But suddenly that that made it political. And when I pitched the next one, they were like, mm, go and do one about footballers' wives. You know? So it's it's everyone kind of decides for themselves and everyone senses where the lines are. Um, and, and it's much more a case of self-censorship in that sense rather than anything else. So people just instinctively know that they've gone too far. You were just talking about the the compulsory or the the military service. That was another really interesting part of your book. You wrote, "It could be said that if a year in the army is the overt process that molds young Russians, a far more powerful bond with the system is created by the rituals of avoiding military service." And I wanted to see if you would speak to, like, explain to us what those rituals of avoidance are and how they shape those people's relationship with the state. Sure, sure. I mean, I always find this fascinating as well. It's a great question. Um, so, you know, compulsory national military service is one of the, you know, basic ways that many states build loyalty and identity. So Israel, clearly, probably the most obvious example of a state that's, you know, people really become Israeli when they're in the army. So Russia has compulsory national service. Certainly in Soviet times, going through the army was a big, big deal and a big part of you. Really, you know, in a, in a sense, being broken by the state, you know, that's where you were kind of broken in and humiliated a lot and you became a good Soviet citizen. Nowadays, there's still compulsory national service, but everyone who can gets out of it. Um, but some people, if you're studying, you know, if you're a student at the university, that's one way of getting out. Um, and actually, there's all these sort of, again, the simulacra, all these pseudo sort of higher educational institutions that get fun- founded that you just pay some money and say you're studying there and that gets you off. But not everyone can, you know, that's a lot of money. You know, imagine like just buying a college degree. It's, it's going to be pretty expensive. So if a lot of people can't afford that. So what do they have to do? They have to pretend, they have to get like a, a letter from a hospital saying that they, they're physically unfit, you know, that they, you know, they've got asthma or diabetes or whatever. And um, that basically involves the, both the young person and their parent um, essentially uh, kind of being sucked into a world of corruption, if, even if they never wanted to be corrupt. Because you firstly you've got to find a doctor who's going to give you this false uh, piece of paper. Um, you've got to find it. You've got to pay him money. Then it's not, I mean, this is why Russia is so much fun. The doctor won't just give it to you. You still have to come into hospital and spend a week there pretending to be really ill. 
So already a young person of 18 is already learning how to sort of like to survive in a society. He's got to fake it. Uh, a bit like later when he grows up, he's got to pretend to vote. And everybody knows that they're pretending, but everyone kind of plays along because this is the way societies were formed over, over, over a long period of time. So you lie there pretending to be ill. Then uh, you get out. Then you still have to go to uh, the military place where they, they will test you again. You give them the letter. They'll test you again. But, you know, they, they go along with it as well. You usually have to give another bribe there. And so, you know, to get out of military service, you've gone through this whole kind of... Uh, um, uh, sort of labyrinth of faking it and bribery and corruption, which actually makes you the ideal you know, uh, citizen of contemporary Russia, because uh, all your life you're going to be sort of you know faking your voting in elections, uh, faking your taxes, you know, you're part of this game, but where you're actually very dependent on the state, because once you faked it, firstly psychologically you really you know you're a little bit like that. Uh, corruption was a great way. It always corrupts the person who's who's you know at the bottom of it, giving the bribe as well as the person demanding it. Um, uh, and and you kind of learn to think it's normal. You know, if you, if you're already faking it from the age of eighteen, then you you know it's no big deal to then kind of like go and pretend that uh, you're you know voting in a real election or pretend you're paying your taxes when you're not. We had a guest uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Mark Galliotti, who was talking about the fact that Russian military conscription is only for one year and that, in fact, it's very, very hard to train anyone and then turn them into good soldiers. And he said, basically, you have like three months of someone you can actually use on a battlefield uh, before they're gone. So I guess what you're saying would actually almost explain that. It's about breaking people in. Um, Marx is, is the world's biggest expert on the Russian military. I mean, I, I, uh, so, so I actually have no idea what happens on the battlefield. Um, but it would it definitely explain that it's much more about breaking people in. But the idea is um, uh, very much to, you know, socialize people, make them part of, you know, make them part of the states rather than make them into great soldiers. All right, Peter. What do you see are the, the what are the weaknesses of this of this system that you've described, and are the cracks kind of showing? The weaknesses is that it's got nothing to do with reality. You know, it's a pseudo. Everything is fake. You know, uh, uh, there's there's Putin is like this Toreador, You know, uh, this bullfighter with this red cape of corruption and propaganda that through which he avoids reality. Um, and that's what everyone in Russia says. Like, when will reality catch up with Russia? Because this like world of you know, truth is actually quite a useful thing. You know, there, there's a reason democracies allegedly try to stick to, you know, a real process. It makes us, you know, face up to the problems in the country. Elections make us sort of like checks, uh, checks how well um, the administrations actually work and so on and so forth. And, and so a system based on pretense and um, fakery at one point should hit the iceberg of reality. I'm really mixing my metaphors here. Um, Every time Putin comes near reality, he finds a way out there so far. So, you know, in 2012, there were mass protests calling for real democracy, and, you know, a real modernization plan, and he looked in trouble. And he invented a fake war. He invented fake fascists in Ukraine and, you know, this kind of complete and utter illusion, but it was efficient to get his ratings back up. Um, now, um, you know, that's kind of expanded into the war with ISIS. Um, I mean, ISIS, of course, is a very real enemy and does need to be dealt with. Um, uh, but again, he's found a new story, a new narrative that distracts from, from the sad reality of the way Russian economy and society is going. There is no domestic policy anymore on Russian TV. I, did, I worked on an EU project recently about you know, Russian TV, and, and, and we did like a, 
a uh, an analysis of um, a content analysis of, of, of the news and stories on Russian news and current affairs. And there's hardly anything about social problems. It's all when we were doing it, it was Ukraine. It was all you know the conspiracy, the global conspiracy against Russia, uh, civil war in Ukraine. The whole world is going to you know going to hell. Only Putin can save it. It's like this movie um, about a world disintegrating into chaos with Putin as a sort of Batman type hero to save it. Um, not a mention of sort of like you know hospitals or anything like that. Um, so um, every time we think he's going to hit reality, he thinks of something bigger and better. And there's still a lot of big stories that he can think of. Um, he can still do a big missile crisis somewhere. There was the Arctic War, which they were playing with. So they can go on and on and on. Which um, when he runs out of stories, but he seems he's, he's like Shahrazad of the Arabian Nights. You know, thinks of another story as soon as you know we think he's going to get executed. No, he pulls another one out of the hat. Uh, which is very much based on TV, which comes back to our first thing. Like TV is obviously sort of the the uh, you know satanic machine that cooks up all these new stories. They don't need to be that related to reality. I mean, with ISIS, they are related to reality. In Ukraine, it was you know hallucinated a war into reality. Um, so they just need to be good stories. Um, so there you go. He's like a huge TV producer, a huge entertainment TV producer. Like like I was a tiny entertainment TV producer in Russia. He's like the great entertainment TV producer. Well, that sounds like. Uh... I mean, a terrific point to stop. I don't think we're going to get much better than that. Um, So thank you very, very much, Peter, for joining us. Oh, and let me mention the name of the book again. Again, I think the the title's fantastic. The book is Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. So uh, check it out. That is it, War College listeners. That is our episode from the early weeks of December in 2015. I hope you found it as interesting as I did to go back and listen to this during my my Thanksgiving hangover. We will be back next week with a new episode of War College. Uh, I'm not going to read anything to you from uh, from the comments section today, but I am going to give you a little taste of some of the things that we've got cooking, some of the things that are coming up. We've got a phenomenal conversation about the Battle of Cressy and its importance to England and the longbow and all sorts of mythology around war. We've also got a great episode coming up about about Japan, Shinzo Abe, and its role in the you know nuclear North Korean conflict. We're also about to sit down and talk to the International Red Cross about how to make video games more humane and bring humanitarian law into the digital world. It's going to be interesting. Thank you so much for listening. If you like us, please you know, hit us up on Facebook. We're at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. We're also on Twitter at war underscore college. And if you like us, please go to iTunes, rate us there, drop a comment, and we may just read it here at the end of the show.